World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. There's one less TV channel in the Philippines this week, the country's most watched network, known for clashing with firebrand president Rodrigo Duterte, was forced off the air, and challenges to press freedom couldn't come at a worse time. And we take a look at Zama, an Argentinian novel penned 60 years ago. Our columnist finds themes in it that sadly resonate in Latin America even today. Flimsy rule of law, an undercurrent of violence, waiting for salvation that never comes. But first... Today, Britain's Office for National Statistics reported that economic output dropped by 5.8% in March, the worst monthly fall since records began. The data confirmed what many had suspected. In Britain, as elsewhere, lockdown has had a devastating impact on the economy. That's one reason the country's leaders are loosening restrictions to get people back to work. We're taking the first careful steps to modify our measures. And the first step is a change of emphasis that we hope that people will act on this week. We said that you should work from home. As of today, some measures have been eased. Garden centers are open, unlimited exercise is allowed, and people can meet with one person from outside their household. Along with the loosening, the government unveiled a new slogan. We must stay alert. We must continue to control the virus and save lives. There is, however, a slight problem. I don't know what stay alert means. Presumably we all live our lives in normal times, staying alert to danger. Uh, But if I say to you, my message now is stay alert, and you say to me, but does that mean I stay at home or not? I I can't give you a straight answer to that. Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, isn't the only one with criticisms of the leadership in Westminster. Increasingly, Britain is under international scrutiny, and the confused messaging is just the start. The reaction has been pretty confused to this. Emma Duncan is our Britain editor. So the new slogan is stay alert. The old slogan was stay at home. And when you told people to stay at home, they knew what to do. When you tell people to stay alert, they don't really know what that means. They can't see this virus, so they're not really clear what they're staying alert for. There's been some actual confusion from the government about some of the loosening. So, for instance, the government was originally saying that loosening was going to happen two days ago, and then that was corrected to happening today. The foreign secretary, when describing the restrictions, got it wrong about who you could uh, meet. And broadly speaking, there is kind of worry about how people are supposed to get back to work 
even if they can work safely. When schools are still not open, that's not part of this stage of the loosening of lockdown. So there are a lot of questions out there and a lot of criticism, particularly from the labour unions. And this isn't the first time the government has come under fire for confused policies or confused communications. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's a lot of criticism of the fact that the government started on a testing programme early in March and then discontinued that, only to start it up again too late and struggling to get to the position that other countries are in. And there's been a lot of criticism of the fact that there has not been enough personal protective equipment, particularly for people working in the health services and generally for people in vulnerable jobs. And what has the public made of all this? I mean, the Prime Minister had his own COVID scare, which calmed the criticism for a time. But but broadly, what do Britons think now? Well, there was a huge bounce in support for Boris Johnson early on. In March and April, his popularity rating soared. And that's been true of some other leaders too. But since late April, they've been sliding again. And that's really because of this perception that the government messed up early on and because people don't really know what they're supposed to be doing now. So what's quite interesting is looking at the polls about how Britons think that their government has dealt with this crisis compared to other countries. And Basically, Britons think that we have messed up here. They think that we've done worse than anywhere on the European mainland, worse than the Asian countries, and the only country that Britons generally think they have performed better than is America. Well, that's what people within Britain think about Britain's response when looking abroad. What about abroad looking in at Britain? Do we have a sense for how what's happening here has been perceived? Yes, we do. And this crisis is not doing Britain's international reputation any good. Among Asians, a lot of flurry on social media from worried parents whose children are studying in Britain uh, who wanted to pull them out quickly. And on the European mainland, particularly, where Britain's reputation is not high at the moment because of Brexit and the handling of the Brexit negotiations, there's been a huge amount of unfavourable comment about this government's failure. There was a German column that caught my attention saying that Boris Johnson going into intensive care was a metaphor for the nation as a whole. The entire nation was in intensive care, on ventilation and self isolating, uh, which was what Brexit was. If you look in America, among uh, newspapers like the Washington Post and the New York Times, there's also quite a bit of criticism. So Britain, which likes to think of itself as a country with high standing in the world, is slipping pretty sharply as a result of its handling of this crisis. And so you genuinely believe this goes beyond a bit of editorialising abroad and Britain's general tendency towards self-deprecation? Britain's chattering classes certainly do have a tendency towards self-deprecation. Declinism is a very popular pastime in this country. But we are seeing a step change in how Britain is being talked about abroad. And this is feeding into uh, some other difficulties the country is having. So the Brexit negotiations are not going at all well. It looks increasingly as though Britain is going to crash out of Europe without a deal at the end of the year. Um, It has started trade talks with America, 
But those are going to be very difficult because there are some tricky issues involved there. For instance, uh, the NHS, America wants to be able to sell its services and goods to the NHS. Britain is very protective, increasingly protective about the NHS. So having that as part of a trade deal will be tricky. And there's increasing tension between Britain and China. And that's not unique to Britain, obviously. There's a lot of criticism of China all over the world at the moment. But it's particularly sharp in Britain, where there's a faction of the Tory party that is increasingly critical of China. And so Britain is looking a little lonelier than it would like to at the moment. Well, that's just it. I wonder how much that description of the current world order has been changed then by Britain's response to COVID-19. What I think the response does and the reactions to Britain's response, it's making it a little harder for Britain to do what it likes to do in the old cliche of punching above its weight. Britain is punching quite a lot below its weight at the moment. And that matters going forwards because Britain is very keen on its soft power. It likes the idea that it has influence in the world when it comes to pushing agendas like human rights, like climate change, that it has a seat at the top table. It is listened to in greater proportion than its GDP or defence forces might argue for. And that really depends on a reputation for competence and good governance. And that reputation has taken a bit of a knock. Emma, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. To follow all of The Economist's coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic and how it's swiftly reshaping the world, visit economist.com slash coronavirus. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. A new TV drama is gripping the Philippines. Last week, the country's most watched network, ABS-CBN, was forced off the air. This is ABS-CBN Corporation Channel 2, in the service of the Filipino. Now signing off. The stated reason was that the broadcaster's license had expired. But as with the best TV dramas, there's more to the story than that. It starts with the country's president. So, Rodrigo Duterte has been in charge of the Philippines since 2016. Miranda Johnson is The Economist's Southeast Asia correspondent. And he has held a grudge against ABS-CBN, which is the largest such network in the Philippines since he was campaigning for office back in 2016. Um, That's because it did not run his political campaign adverts, but it did run an advertisement by an opponent which questioned his morals. Since that time, 
the president has railed against the network on occasion, and it, on some of its news programming, has run reports that are extremely critical of his war on drugs. The scar of a gunshot wound on his chest is a constant reminder of how he escaped death at the hands of authorities. All this came to a boil earlier this year, and in February, ABS-CBN's president offered an apology to Mr. Duterte for not running adverts. We were sorry if we offended the president. That was not the intention of the network. But that has not seemingly stopped the onslaught against the network. And now the network is, is, is off air. I mean, how, how exactly did that happen? So it all gets a little bit fiddly with various rules and regulations. But on May the 5th, the National Television Commission, which is a regulator, ordered the broadcaster to cease operations immediately because its franchise expired the day before. But there has been some pressure on the National Television Commission. The Solicitor General of the Philippines, Jose Calida, warned the body on May the 3rd not to grant any kind of temporary permission to ABS-CBN to remain on air while Congress considers whether or not to renew its franchise. And so how has the, the network responded now that it's been pulled off air? So obviously its employees and journalists and others are upset. Um, Chairman Mark Lopez told viewers just before it went off air that it's painful for us that we're being shut down, but it's also painful for millions of our countrymen. Mula pa po nang magsimula ang ABS-CBN noong 1953. Who believe that our service is important to them. Critics have said that this is problematic for free speech. In the Philippines, it's problematic for freedom of the press. And others have pointed out that it's stupid to shut down the network that runs the country's most popular news program in the midst of a pandemic. COVID-19 pandemic special coverage. Teleradio special coverage. And, and this is a, a president and, and indeed, I guess, an administration that has been fairly aggressive towards journalists in the past. Yes. Um, Mr. Duterte has referred to journalists as sons of bitches before. He has also said that certain reporters, that none should be exempted from assassination, which is... Um, pretty inflammatory stuff in a country where from time to time reporters are killed for doing their jobs. And ABS-CBN is also not alone in being a news outlet that's been targeted. Rappler, which is a news website set up by Maria Ressa, who's a respected journalist who came over from CNN, faces charges including tax evasion and cyber libel, which have implicated Maria Ressa as well. And critics say that those are politically motivated because the president and his allies didn't like, again, their negative reporting, particularly on the issue of the drugs war. What does this episode tell you about the state of, of democracy in the Philippines more generally? Rodrigo Duterte says outrageous things and also under his presidency, outrageous actions have occurred. But ultimately, he is extremely popular still among Filipinos. We saw that in the midterm elections last year, where his grip 
on Congress actually strengthened after the midterm elections. And so it's very difficult to damage him politically, given the overwhelming support he enjoys in the country. Which is to say that uh, ABS, CBN's fortunes are, are pretty much sealed. I mean, what, what, what happens from here? So in Congress, there is a fight underway right now, particularly in the upper house, the Senate, to try and get the franchise renewed. The influential Lopez family, which owns... ABS-CBN overall has said that the network is not up for sale and ABS-CBN also has a right to legally challenge its closing down as it stands. So I think the battle is going to go to a few more rounds yet, but it is unfortunate that already the channel has had to come off air. Thanks very much for your time, Miranda. Thanks, Jason. For decades, it was left to friends, footnotes, and scholars. But now Zama, an Argentinian novel written 60 years ago, is having a renaissance. It was written by Antonio Di Benedetto, an Argentine who was born and lived for most of his life in Mendoza, which is a city in in, uh, western Argentina. Mike Reed writes Bayo, our column on Latin America. Di Benedetto was interesting. He was politically pretty moderate. But then in one of those kind of arbitrary actions of fate, which might have come from one of his novels, when there was a military coup in Argentina in 1976, within hours he was picked up, arrested, jailed, tortured, subjected to four mock executions. And he never quite knew why, which kind of haunted him for the rest of his life. He was released after... 18 months, and he immediately went off into self-imposed exile in Europe. And and this masterwork, Zama, what is it about? It's set in Asuncion, now the capital of Paraguay. Asuncion had been uh, an early colonial settlement in southern South America, but it quickly became a backwater, this obscure part of the Spanish empire as it was coming to the end of its time because independence would come a generation or so after the novel. The protagonist, Diego de Zama, is the legal advisor to the governor in Asuncion. He is eternally waiting for a posting and promotion to somewhere more interesting that is always half-promised and never happens. And as he waits, he's tortured by his desire for illicit love. So the themes of the novel are really waiting, solitude, frustration, self-destruction. And so how was Zama received when it was published? Well, it made a small ripple in literary circles in Argentina, but really was not widely noted. It didn't become famous in Latin America. And then in this century, that has changed. And that's partly because Roberto Bolaño, a Chilean postmodern writer, he was a great fan of Di Benedetto. And he indeed wrote a short story, which is a barely disguised fictional homage to Di Benedetto. And I think partly because of that, it became more noticed. But then at last, in 2016, it was translated into English. And then the following year, an Argentine film of the novel 
by Lucrecia Martel, a quite well-known Argentine film director, came out. And, and to your mind, there are, are themes in the, in the book that seem particularly timely? I think so. I mean, why it's such a captivating novel is because I think a lot of its themes resonate a lot in, in Latin America. There is that eternal sense of waiting, waiting for prosperity, for a better life, for a bus, for a hospital appointment, for some necessary bureaucratic piece of paper, whatever. And so this sense of, uh, of waiting, of expectation on the one hand. On the other hand, there's this sense of the cruelty of bureaucracy, I think, is there as well. The, this figure of the Spanish governor who is both kind of friendly and remote and kind of all-powerful. But then there's also the sense that the law is one thing and the reality on the ground is, is another. And there are these undercurrents of violence, which, you know, is sadly a theme in contemporary Latin America as well. So, so indeed, many of the frustrations that someone would have found in, in, in that part of the world are still frustrations from today. Yes, I think that's right. It's a novel ostensibly set in the past and in a specific time and place, which he does conjure up. But as one of its early fans said, it's almost a negation of the idea of a historical novel because it's really a psychological novel and, and that makes it have so much contemporary relevance. Mike, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.